one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 503 for the week of Monday, January 14th, 2013. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. How you doing, Sawyer? Recovering from the ravages of yet another virus, but uh, doing, all, doing all right otherwise. And uh, may I add, I had a blast with you over at the uh, Challenger Center uh, over the weekend. So that was uh, really cool. Thanks a lot for inviting me. No problem. Great to see you again in person, and I am doing well back in my normal recording space, so my audio should be a little better this time. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Howdy, and been a while since I've seen both of you guys, so yeah, at least we get to talk. Indeed. If we didn't get to have this little discussion every week, I think I would go crazy. So, let's keep ourselves sane, and let's start this episode off, which, for once, I'm actually not going to have the first story. Gene, that goes to you with a really big conference that occurred this past weekend, correct? Yes, there was a interesting little press event that occurred um, this past week. This was in reference to the commercial crew and what NASA's partners are doing to prepare themselves for final uh, handoff of uh, delivering both uh, commercial uh, cargo and eventually uh, crew to the International Space Station. So far, about one point one billion dollars has been invested in in the project, and that includes uh, the three big uh, leaders, uh, that is uh, Boeing, SpaceX, or Space Exploration Technologies, and Sierra Nevada. Now, one of the other groups that took place in, during the, uh, the press conference was a company that we hadn't really heard very much from, but they've been quietly also working ahead, and that is uh, Blue Origin. And they, by the way, were, were incredibly open about what they were doing, what their deadlines are, how far along they're going. Uh, they eventually do want to go, uh, their first objective for at least crew is to go to a suborbital and uh, continue that, that, which is, again, they're using a, a vehicle called New Shepard. It's a, sort of a conical-type vehicle. Uh, eventually, New Shepard's going to go ahead and dock with the ISS, but they want to first try to see if they can they can try to go ahead and, and send it off to uh, suborbit. Uh, but they were very, very open and very, very blunt as far as what they were doing. And hats off to them. I mean, they've, they've apparently learned their lessons from the past. Um, but they are saying they are, on, you know, they are doing well and they're on track to deliver at least their uh, suborbital craft right on time. Uh, the other folks that uh, participated in this were obviously Boeing with the CST-100. Their spokesman said that they've met a number of important milestones, 
and uh, their team is is working really really hard to to accomplish those those milestones. And they're doing they're doing some some good stuff. Their plans uh, for 2013 is to continue the design, uh, go ahead and integrate the the vehicle onto the onto the Atlas V to make sure it, all the connections are good. Um, they want to go ahead and plan some mission control demonstrations uh, to make sure that you know, their their procedures are are intact and, and doing good. And uh, they I believe are going to get the keys to. One of the orbiter processing facilities, it's OPF number three, uh, and that's going to happen this summer. So Boeing has, has been very, very hard at work there. Um, Sierra Nevada was, was next, and um, their uh, president, Mark Sarangelo, uh, gave the uh, discussion there. And uh, their test article is, is set and ready to go. Now, some of the press did ask if, if the, the, the dropped vehicle that they, uh, they did uh, – uh, conduct those drop tests with, I believe, it was around Memorial Day. I think um, they um, they went ahead and uh, conducted the drop tests of the Dream Chaser in, in total, the, the former um, HL twenty, and uh, that vehicle, by the way, will not be the one that's actually going to fly. They're kind of sort of taking the same uh, the same tests as say, we did with you know the space shuttle, meaning you know they've got their prototype, which is the one they're conducting the drop tests with, and so on. And then, of course, they'll go ahead and they'll start building the uh, the first one. So the one that's sitting out there was uh, was was very good. But um, the uh, the the thing that uh, was discussed too that apparently they got a lot of questions on was if 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 anybody was there for the Atlantis rollover when it moved from the vehicle assembly assembly building over to its final resting place over at um, KSC Visitor Center. Apparently, SNC had a interesting little exhibit over there and they were just pummeled with questions as far as that thing because they kind of look at dream chaser as sort of the you know the the baby sister to the space shuttle and you can tell there's a lot of passion there too you could see it in in um, uh, mr sarangelo's eyes you could see it you know in in actually could see it in, in everybody's eyes there too but there was a lot of passion on as far as that was concerned um garrett reisman who was the uh spokesman for SpaceX, and he gave a very good uh, alignment as far as where they are in getting to a commercial, commercial crew. Um, they, were, they were saying that they are uh, undergoing abort and other, other analysis for, uh, for their software, uh, the uh, crew uh, initial crew systems and design development, basically the cabin layout and the ergonomics of the thing, and, uh, of course, the launch and abort system test. Now, that's an interesting deal because what they want to do with that is they want to take a Falcon 9 and mount the Dragon up on top of it and do a live test that way, uh, meaning do a whole propulsive thing where, where the escape tower detaches and so on. So that, I believe, is planned for, for 2014. So that's going to be kind of interesting, too, since Orion 2 is also going to have its test flight there. Um, all in all, it looks to me that... Uh, the commercial guys are ready, you know, they're really, really trying to meet the milestones. And as um, the folks during the, uh, the NASA folks during the, the, the conversation here um, had indicated, uh, each one of these things, the awards, as they call it, are not doled out, you know, like that. They have to meet certain milestones, and there's an award amount attached to those milestones. So the U.S. taxpayer, while $1.1 billion has been invested in the project, it's been earmarked for it. It hasn't been doled out just yet. So 
um, they're also going to run into um, to budget problems as well. But it looks but it looks like everything you know save the budget is on track for at least a twenty uh, you know fourteen twenty fifteen uh, test at least for SpaceX. They want to try to get their a, a crew on board now. The interesting thing that somebody had asked during the, uh, the press conference was, "Will this be NASA crew? Will this be you know SpaceX employees? What who will it be?" And you know, it'll be SpaceX employees that'll be flying flying the, the first spacecraft. Uh, ditto with all of the other other ships that are in this thing, meaning CST one hundred, um, you know, Dream Chaser, you know, the aforementioned Blue Origin vehicle, the New Shepard. They will all be first flown by private astronauts. They will not be NASA employees, and I think that's 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 in there by law. Um, when Garrett Reisman was then asked the typical follow up question, since Garrett Reisman is also a former shuttle astronaut, um, you know, are you you know you're going to be the one flying the thing? He kind of said, "Well, you know, since you made it personal." Um, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm gonna you know say if I wanted to stay you know flying spacecraft I probably would have stayed in, in the NASA astronaut corps, but I want to build a, a spacecraft because he's he's part of the safety. Uh, in fact, he's lead on on all the safety provisions on board Dragon. He says I want to build a spacecraft that I can look at myself in the mirror, look at my wife and kids, and say yeah I will fly that ship, and that was I think he went ahead and. Just sort of by just by saying that, he went ahead and and kind of described I think what everybody on that panel is feeling. They want to build the safest spacecraft that they can. We'll have we'll have to see how all this goes. The big question mark in this whole thing is the upcoming budget, and will all of this be uh, you know, be put in, and will this be uh, you know be approved and so on. Will it? That's a good question, and that battle is going to be happening in the in the coming weeks. So it's going to be something we're going to be watching very, very closely. I'd say think some of the bigger ones of that had to be definitely um, Bigelow and Blue Origin, and some of those more unique ones. And then you know SpaceX's announcement on how they're flying their own people first. I mean, a- until you were telling me a little bit before the show about how everyone's planning that, that's just something that initially jumps out at you of like, oh, wait a minute. They're flying their own people first, so that way they could prove to NASA that, hey, our guys didn't die, so yours probably won't too. That's an interesting way of putting it, but it, it's it's probably you know, and it's a direct way of putting it. Um, but it's it's probably true. I believe the contract actually states in it, and I'm not too sure. I'll have to look it up, but I've but I've heard through several sources that that's what the thing says. That uh, NASA crew would be prohibited from flying until after the first test flights. So, um, yeah, and I'm wondering too if there is going to be a healthy mix of of you know SpaceX crew and or or Sierra Nevada crew or you know uh, or Boeing crew or Blue Origin crew really um, going forward as far as all this is concerned and seeing if they will. Uh, They'll continue and uh, and move forward with all of this, and they will be also sort of complementing our NASA astronauts or or whatever. So yeah, it'd be interesting, it'd be fun to watch. The other interesting thing is that Blue Origin, you know, that they were 
starting to get involved in this, and yet they didn't really originally look for funds under CCI cap. No, they didn't. That's absolutely correct. And uh, but they they are trying to get in on this. They were also very not exactly forthcoming with a lot of information initially. And I'm still sort of scratching my head as to why that really was. I mean, I still recall um, being in the STS-134 press room uh, and hearing the uh, Blue Origin uh, representative then say, well, you know, we don't give out launch dates or we don't, you know, publicize launch dates. And we kind of just kind of, everybody kind of looked at each other like, you know, what's what's this all about? Um, To be fair, the question was, can you give us a ballpark figure as to when you might see crew flying on these spacecraft? And each one of the representatives over there said, we're going to meet the, the 2017 deadline, period. You know, SpaceX was saying, well, we'll, we'll, we'll was, was trying to up the ante a little bit, but uh, if I recall. But uh, everybody at that, that podium was confident that they were going to meet the 2017 deadline. And they just basically said, well, we're, you know, and that's the way they, they handled it. About upping the ante, you're correct. I believe SpaceX was, instead of saying 2017, they were the ones saying probably closer to 2015 was their goal. Yeah, 20, actually, I think the I think, I think it was 2016, but now, um, yeah, during the, uh, the press conference last week, they were indicating it was going to be about 2015. So uh, again, it's an over, I think it's a bit of an aggressive schedule, but um, I, if anybody can pull it off, I guess you know they, they've they've been pulling rabbits out of their hats since they've started. So if anybody can pull it off, I think they can. There was a question, by the way, about the Merlin One engine failure on uh, on the uh, CRS One flight, and uh, Garrett Reisman had indicated that they do have a, a root cause for that now. You know that both SpaceX and NASA had a joint investigation, tried to go ahead and and isolate what that was. They believe they've got a root cause. They haven't announced it yet because they want to make you know doubly sure that they're giving the right information out. And uh, uh, once they, but the announcement would be forthcoming. So uh, again, the, you know that I just thought I'd go ahead and and put that in there. And actually, going back to touch on what you were talking about a little bit before is about the openness of Blue Origin a little bit. Because, I mean, SpaceX, as we're talking about, they're announcing everything, such as their ambitious dates. And then you have Boeing, who's literally going to take over some NASA's facilities. And then you have Sierra Nevada, who's you saw what they were displaying as well. And now Blue Origin, they're being a little more open. They're actually now on Twitter, at Blue Origin, but... Other than that, you're right. They're probably the most quiet of all of them, all of the people in CCI cap, even though they're not in CCI cap. Yeah, they they've uh, they've really really turned it around. I mean, the, their spokesman was was incredible. He was he was you know answering direct questions. He was you know not hedging any way, shape, or form. He was laying it right there on the line. And and hats off to him. I think they've learned a lot, and that uh, you know they they know now that they've got to go ahead and kind of sort of you know come forward and and talk about what they're doing. Especially, you know, if you know, if taxpayer money is is involved, but uh, if we're going to start paying these guys, and eventually we we will be paying these guys, you know, we'd like to know where you know what our money's doing. So, um, but uh, uh, again, hats off to them. They were they were incredible during that press conference. They came a long way, a very long way. Yes, indeed, and it's going to be very interesting to keep following along with all these companies and 
see what happens to them because we're going to be talking about some more private space companies in a little bit. So continuing along now, the next story is in fact mine, and this one does involve a little bit of private spaceflight travel, but some spaceflight travel that smells pretty darn good. What do I even mean by that? Well, what I mean is there is a new contest that was introduced by Axe, which is also known as Lynx in some locations overseas. Axe is a body spray, and they have a really interesting new, I would guess, contest is the way to word it. They are calling it the Axe Apollo Space Academy, or AASA. As the motto says, leave a man, come back a hero. Now what they are planning to do is, they are planning to send 22 people into space. You heard me right. This is a competition going out through 60 countries in 45 languages here, according to an article from Yahoo.com and Space.com. The plan is that the winners will fly aboard a Lynx spacecraft, which is by XCOR, and they will do a short suborbital flight. The way they will be chosen is they will log on to the Axe website that they have provided, which is axeapollo.com. They will then go on, say why they deserve to be selected to be an astronaut. Then the finalists will be sent down to Orlando, Florida, where they will have their own version of space camp, and they will have to compete in space simulation challenges, and the 22 selected winners will be flown aboard the Lynx spacecraft eventually into space. What do you think? Really cool or just an interesting marketing ploy? Yeah, I th- well, of course it's a marketing ploy, but uh, I mean, I think, uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, Buzz Aldrin is involved in this. I think he was in, in, in some of the, uh, the, the PR photographs for it, and I think he might have been there when, when the PR announcement was made. Correct. This, this thing has all of the earmarks of a, almost like a reality show, and I would not be a bit, bit surprised if this actually went that way. You know, eventually, once the 22 individuals were assembled, um, that this turns into some sort of reality show, and at the end, they win, you know, the, the, you know one season shot, obviously, but that, uh, you know, the, the, the end of it is that you follow the, the lucky individuals on one of the Lynx spacecraft uh, on their suborbital flight. So, is this a marketing play? Oh, you bet it is, but what a marketing play. <laughs> I think probably the most interesting part of all of this is if you go to their website and then click on the official rules. I was reading through all of those the other day, and that was probably the most entertaining part. Obviously, there's the more obvious requirements, such as physical and health requirements and local government requirements. But other than that, it says that, quote, The grand prize is one reservation on the X-Cord Link suborbital space vehicle for one person on one flight to travel into space on dates to locations and for a duration determined by sponsor between January 1st, 2013 and December 31st, 2020. So they're being a little vague there. They'll also get a check for $25,000 to defray the cost, and the actual retail value of this is estimated at $86,000, which what I find interesting is if you get to December 31st, 2020, and you don't fly, they still gave you $86,000 plus the $25,000 check. 
take it. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> you know, I'll take it. Uh, you know, again, I think they're 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 hedging their bets, is what they are. They're just making sure because because Lynx isn't isn't flying yet, and they're they're hedging the bets and making sure that Lynx is is going to be available to fly, and that it's it's in good shape to fly. So you know, nothing against Xcore. I know they they too are are trying to get this. That, that's their little suborbital spacecraft, and they too want to get this going. Um, they're very eager to start it, and I'm sure they're they're working, you know, pretty diligently at at getting a, the uh, the links ready to fly. But I guess they are, you know, the the folks in the contest are kind of sort of hedging their bets. They're just making sure that you know they can, you know, they're going to get get something out of this. So, but uh, wow, I, I'd still have to admit that's a pretty interesting span of time. <laughs> And here's another thing that I find ridiculously interesting. We're talking about Axe. We're talking about the Lynx, which is part of X-Core. And yet, going further into the official rules, it mentions another company. It says, in two locations, quote, SpaceX astronauts will also be accompanying the winner on trip. And further down, it also says, grand prize winner must complete any required additional releases required by SpaceX prior to trip how did spacex get involved in this i guess lynx is deferring to them for their expertise i don't know um i bet this is just a shot in the dark maybe they they've got maybe spacex has got certain or, or they're thinking maybe spacex will be in a position to be a little bit more learned about things than they are i've got absolutely no idea how they got involved in this i really don't that's that's a good question for uh for Axe, and that's a good question for uh, for Xcore. But my bet is uh, probably they will, you know, they will they have just maybe certain expertise that maybe links maybe the links folks do not. It's just a wild guess. Would you fly with them? <laughs> oh boy, um, let's see if let's see if see if links actually works. Good point. Let's see if Lynx actually works. If it does, then yeah, I'll fly. Sure. And I'm not a test pilot. <laughs> Apparently there's also a body spray line that accompanies this, but <laughs> I'm not even going there because I must add here at this point so that way nobody gets any ideas. We are in no way associated with or being sponsored by Axe. This is personally a story with our own opinions with no paid or unpaid promotion by Axe. Yep. If they want to, that's a whole other story. But <laughs> Oh, we'll welcome it, believe me. <laughs> but we are not sponsored by them. And if you want more information on their own website, or if you want to actually enter into this, because if one of our listeners gets onto this, you know you're going to be a guest on our show, whether you want to or not. <laughs> exactly. The website is axeapollo, which is A-X-E-A-P-O-L-L-O dot com. And then the deadline to enter is February 3rd at midnight Pacific time. Good luck to all of our Talking Space listeners entering, and I hope you smell good. I'm not going there. <laughs> Alrighty then. So, our trips around the table, as if you noticed this year, have been a little weird so far. We have not gone nine stories, but we're still going around the table, and that ends our first trip. So our second trip around the table goes back to Eugene, and I think this is a story that's going to blow up pretty big. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Well, you've heard the term beam me up there, Star Trek fans. Well, uh, essentially, uh, Bigelow Aerospace has told NASA to do that, and they have done just that. The Bigelow Expandable Activity Module, or BEAM, which will be affixed to the uh, International Space Station uh, at, some, at, at some point in the future here. Um, this is coming from a report from, you know, dare I say, I'm looking at an article here from Fox News. They are saying that the, this is a partnership agreement uh, between uh, Bigelow and, uh, and NASA to see how the technology will behave in space. Um, and uh, uh, this will be, uh, be quite, uh, quite a deal. As you know, Bigelow has already floated, I believe, two of the vehicles themselves, uh, the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Those vehicles had about, were about, uh, what, about 14, according to the article, about 14 feet long and about 8 feet wide um, with about uh, 406 cubic feet of pressurized volume inside them. Uh, this is going to be quite a good deal because, just as an aside, NASA was the one who started playing with this technology, the inflatable, the inflatable technology, and somehow or due to budget cuts or whatever, they did not follow up on that technology and essentially licensed it out to uh, or gave it to, to Bigelow Aerospace. And now they're taking it one step further. So this is sort of NASA's own technology coming back uh, to, uh, to help them out. Um, it's hoped to, to see whether, whether or not this, will, this can be used as an inflatable you know, module eventually for, uh, for uh, the IS, not only just for the ISS, but for future space stations. And also possibly be integrated into a uh, a lunar base of some sort, uh, where this inflatable module would essentially be be used as the um, as a shelter for uh, for uh, a, a lunar flight. So again, this is a test, um, but we're hoping that uh, this all goes well, and uh, we'll be watching the Bigelow story with great interest, and hopefully it'll. It'll pan out for them because, again, this is just another, you know, another sort of, uh, you know, pin in the, in the map here for the for the commercial space guys. So basically, NASA at this point is paying for a private inflatable rubber room. Well, I wouldn't go so <laughs> far as to call it a you know, private inflatable rubber room. Um, as I said, this this one is, I believe, going to be. Uh, again, since it's a demo, it'll probably be used as you know for storage or whatever, sort of like uh, what the permanent uh, uh, the uh, permanent module that we have over there, the, the former MPLM is is doing right now. Um, so you know, again, it, it's it's not exactly you know the, the the crazy rubber room. It's it's basically going to be. Um, essentially, be part of the ISS. It'll, you know, I, I guess it'll again, you know, this room I would figure will be used for, uh, for, uh, for storage and possibly running maybe a couple of experiments for, uh, for, a, for a test to see if, uh, if these things could actually behave very well in a in a in a uh, microgravity environment. So, uh, this is a big deal for Bigelow, and if they if this concept actually works, they could theoretically take this inflatable technology and essentially create their own space stations up there eventually and and paying you know having paying customers go over there to hire you know to hire hire folks to run experiments and what have you and thus too you have much more of a 
broad platform for the uh, for everybody to go ahead and visit because as as we've we we kind of discussed here Sawyer that ISS is due to splash down when about 2020 so uh, although it, you know there are rumors extending it out to 2028 but we'll have to see you know with budget and all that what happens uh Bigelow could essentially take up where ISS left off and uh hopefully you know continue flying experiments privately um, and you may actually see these other vehicles like you know the Dragon or CST100 or um Dream Chaser, or even even um, the Blue Origins vehicle, New Shepard, paying a call on this thing. Well, we'll definitely get more into ISS lifespan a little later in the show, but I, I, it's definitely an interesting concept, and the fact that we're going inflatable, number one, is unique. The fact that, number two, we're going more c- private-slash-commercial is also unique. You, what you're seeing, Sawyer, I think is the wave of the future, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, um, I know the White House is, is much more, um, much more supportive of this out of this type of approach, rather than you know, having Orion and, and the SLS. The White House approach is strictly going through, you know, dra- going through SpaceX, going through you know Sierra Nevada, going through. All of this and having their vehicles contracted out to NASA astronauts to fly, um, rather than NASA paying for its own vehicles. Um, my only problem with that is: is there a, another vehicle out there that kind of rivals the Orion or kind of rivals uh, the Space Launch System in in its in its lift capacity? So far, no, but. Then again, these two, and we kind of sort of iterated this on the last show, uh, these two don't have a mission yet. So again, we have to decide what we want to do. And I think that too is the crossroads point that uh, uh, we talked about, Sawyer, offline here. It's definitely going to be interesting, and I'm looking forward to seeing it launching and eventually, hopefully, attached to the space station. Keep them fingers crossed. All right, now at this point, we haven't heard yet from Mark. I hate when you're quiet. Mark, we love hearing from you, so do you have something cool for us to share? Well, I'm going to start off with something uh, pretty much foolish and ridiculous, and then I'll go into <laughs> what I actually plan to mention. Stumbled across a web page for one of our, well, for many people, one of their favorite candies, the famous Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. And uh, favorite facts, or facts about your favorite candy, the furthest away any peanut has ever traveled is the moon, courtesy of astronaut Alan Shepard, according to Reese's. Now, on with the serious stuff. Something that I just stumbled across is, and I'm going to kind of spell out the the website, eol.jsc.nasa.gov. And when you hear NASA.gov, you know it's going to be something interesting because they have so much great content on their various websites and pages. But this is Crew Earth Observations videos. And what they've put together, and this was just posted today, a this is a clickable map of the Earth. And you can see a lot of uh, movies where they've taken still frames and stitched them together to to form essentially a movie that would be similar to the speed that you would see the Earth pass by from the space station. 
And, of course, many of these were taken from the space station. There's some links there for lots of interesting stuff. There's the northern and southern uh, auroras. There are video tours of, like, Mexico to New Brunswick, from North to South America at night, different scenes that I think you'll uh, find interesting to watch. I happened to stumble across one that showed a Russian cargo capsule re-entry, and it shows that streak of, of re-entry as the progress capsule is burning up. It's a short little video, but it's kind of interesting. So that's the serious thing. Aside from peanuts on the moon, I think these videos are quite uh, quite interesting to see. Gives you definitely the high ground for a vantage point that uh, you're not going to get here on our own. So thanks, NASA, for these videos and for this Crew Earth Observation video site. Mark, they actually captured the uh, one of the progress uh, vehicles entering and burning it up. That yeah. is too cool. Yeah. And if you remember, there was a photo of, um, I believe it was STS-135, that showed Atlantis on reentry. Uh, showing that streak. Remember July yes. of 2011? How can uh, I forget? <laughs> and of course, that was a still shot, uh, but it showed that that plasma trail. Uh, very cool. And I don't have the, the link or the picture for that, but uh, anyway, anything oh, in space is good. Oh, it's out there. <laughs> well, you know, of course, the link to that will be posted in the show notes, and Sound like some cool videos. Any spacecraft burning up is usually cool to see. It's cool to see as long as it's not yours. And as long as it's designed to burn up as well. Yeah. <laughs> and you're not in it. <laughs> exactly. As Mark had said. Alrighty then. So with that, we are now ready to move on to our final trip around the table. And this one, we have some goodies from all three of us. So... Let's start it off with Gene and head on out to Russia. Yeah, well, Russia's not, well. The United States isn't the only one building a new spacecraft. Apparently, I'm looking at a article that was printed from uh, uh, Wired UK. Uh, apparently, that the Russians are ready to go ahead and re- fly a replacement Soyuz uh, in uh, 2020. Now they say a replacement Soyuz, but I have a funny feeling this is not going to look anything like the. Like the Soyuz we all know and love. I mean, Soyuz itself has been around since, oh, good Lord, uh, probably, uh, you know, 66, 67. 67 was the first, unfortunately, failed test flight. But uh, so that tells you, tells you something right off uh, that uh, this vehicle is, has been doing the job, but it's, you know, it, it's, it's showing its age. So what they want to do is they want to go ahead and build a new spacecraft. According to the, the Roscosmos website, they've also got a, quote, energy transportation module with promising propulsion ins- installation that will be ready for testing by 2018. And apparently it's intended, quote, detailed study of the moon using an entirely new class of interplanetary travel technology. Now, I'm, I keep reading about this, and I keep on seeing that the Russians are talking about, again, a, a lunar flight and so on. But I kind of wonder, this kind of reminds me of another craft I know. Um, it's called Orion. So it, it should be kind of interesting to see how this all plays out. Now, the, the Wired UK article does not give out any type of you know 
know, configurations for the new vehicle or what it should look like or anything like that. And I believe the budget for for this has been set at, and I quote, 2.1 trillion rubles, which translates to $69 billion, according to Wired UK, or 43 billion pounds. Um, but um, it's just, wow. Um, you know, first off, when you think about that, the, the, they're talking about, about getting this, this thing set up. They're also talking about a new, you know, possible booster for all of this and using this for a shot at the moon. Um, have a familiar ring to anybody? <laughs> huh, yeah, that sounds nothing like anything that we're trying to do here in the United States. Oh, no, that doesn't sound like Constellation at all now, does it? Um, so we will just have to see what, how this really, really all plays out and how it, how this really unfolds. I mean, the Russians, you know, they say, you know, sometimes one thing is said and another thing kind of sort of happens. So, uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to, to watch and observe and see, you know, when really Soyuz's flight, the last flight will be and when this new vehicle is going to be coming online. So, uh. Um, again, let's just watch, wait, and see, because this is kind of critical. These guys are the only ones, right now at least, that have um, capacity to get to the ISS. So I'm kind of wondering, too, if they're just going to keep Soyuz flying until after IS, ISS splashes or, or what. But uh, it, uh, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to watch. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what they come up with. Yeah, the, this brings up a concern to me, though, is that they're talking about, I believe you were telling me that they're talking about having this happen by about 2020. Are they still going to keep the Soyuz, and then does that mean that any plans to extend the ISS are out the window then? Because we'll have pretty much no way of getting there besides commercial. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting uh, look on this, Sawyer. It kind of makes me wonder if, if the ISS fate is sealed after 2020. Because um, uh, again, you've got this—you've got the new uh, Russian vehicle coming online about that same time, or will they just you know modify this new vehicle to make sure it still can, could connect up with, with ISS? I mean, we do have the universal docking adapter, which we are working on, um, and I think uh, uh, all of the uh, CCI Cap folks have got to design their docking apparatus just like that. So I think you're. You know, if, if the new vehicle is 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 going to be like that, I'm sure that the universal docking adapter is going to be set up set up on there. But um, again, will it will using this vehicle be like sort of using a uh, a 50 pound sledge to to hammer an attack? Um, don't know. Does it mean that ISS support might wane past 2020? I don't know. Again, I think the partners are going to have to look at what they think they can get out of ISS between now and then. Number you know, see number two, see if they still have transportation over there to see if um, you know, A, that we do have have uh modes of transportation to the International Space Station. Um and B, check everybody's pocketbook. Make sure that that, you know, we've we've got the money to support ISS. So I, I think it's a good question, and it does, you know, beg an answer. It's just I just don't have one right now. I think that's going to be interesting, and maybe they'll get a little better funding than we will too. But that's a whole nother story. Oh, don't get me started. We'll be here all night. <laughs> 
Alrighty then, so as we continue around the table, it once again comes back to me. And with this one, we are going back to another story that we have talked about too many times here on this show. And that was about the petition for the White House to build a Death Star. As we mentioned last episode, they had received all of the signatures necessary to require a response from the White House. Well, they got their response. And they were pretty classy, and if I do say so myself, pretty funny about it. The response is titled, This isn't the petition response you're looking for. I found that hysterical on its own. This was written by Paul Shawcross, the response. And here was what it said. It said, The administration shares your desire for job creation and a strong national defense. But a Death Star isn't on the horizon. Here are a few reasons. The construction of the Death Star has been estimated to cost more than $850 quadrillion. We're working hard to reduce the deficit, not expand it. Second, the administration does not support blowing up planets. And third, why would we spend countless taxpayer dollars on a Death Star with a fundamental flaw that can be exploited by a one-man starship? Brilliant, if I do say so myself. Yeah, uh, they, they did pretty good. They also went ahead and expounded a little bit more about what the Obama administration wants to do with spaceflight and, and so on. And, and I think they, they handled the, the question very, very well indeed. Um, I was still just absolutely amazed at the fact that the thing got initially proposed uh, to begin with. And uh, but nothing. I don't think anything surprises me anymore after that one. Not to belittle the idea of building a small little worldlet, um, but uh, a the money just ain't there. It's one and two. Um, that was a good point too. Somebody saying that uh, you want to go ahead and fix that design flaw first. Um, that one little ship could go ahead and and take the whole thing out. And uh, they apparently didn't fix that the last time either when they decided to go ahead and and build it again. So, classy way of dealing dealing with a rather uh, odd request from the petition things. My only problem with with that whole you know, the Death Star petition was that I'm not sure that anything, you know, space policy related, you know, from that point forward would be taken too seriously. And I'm hoping, you know, that is not the case here. Um, and that, uh, you know, folks will continue to go ahead and, and try to petition the, uh, petition the White House to, to kind of sort of get its act together a little bit with uh, human spaceflight. I love the fact that they responded, they calculated the $850 quadrillion price mark, and just I, the humor in it. I think, I don't think that was actually a calculation. I think somebody actually just, you know, kind of said, all right, what the heck, and, and just put, you know, 860 followed by a whole, you know, quadrillion zeros. Uh, but um, it, it's just the whole point that, you know, one, we're trying to save money. You know, we're trying to go ahead and 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 hang on to to funding that we may may not have. Um, 
and uh, it, it kind of begs the other question, though. Uh, okay, fine, you're not going to fund this, but and nobody really expected this this thing to to actually be taken seriously. I mean, this thing had a had a ice cube's chance at a blast furnace of actually you know coming about. But and to answer your question, by the way. It was a study done by Lehigh University that came up with that number. Somebody actually did do that. I thought somebody just kind of attached those numbers. That was really, really cool. No, their actual response links to an article on the Lehigh University website, which explains that um, it says, quote, the students computed the steel composition of the galactic weapon before coming to the conclusion that the Death Star would cost an estimated $852 quadrillion to build. You know the sad part about it, Sawyer? Somebody actually sat there and ran those numbers. Point. <laughs> you know, somebody was asked to run those numbers, and oh man, that's just insane. So, um, but okay, fine. I stand corrected. You know, and and to the person or team that had to run those numbers, my condolences. But uh, um, you know, again, I I just want to make sure that that petition system is used for some really good, serious stuff, and not not these just really far out ideas but yeah, again at least the white house took it as a as a tongue-in-cheek thing and 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 dealt with it accordingly yeah well <laughs> i don't know if we can comment any further on this and i think we've beaten this story to death as has the u.s government finally so <laughs> yay that or we've just flown our spacecraft through the maze and you know avoid getting ourselves blown up found the one weakness and actually blew up the death star so one of the I two like- just happened I like that one. I like the latter, sort of. Anything with explosions is better. All right. So we have one final story left, and that goes to our good friend Mark. And this is an interesting one. Mark, what do you have for us? Oh, you could call it living in the past or highlights, but I couldn't start to do highlights without uh, needing a lot more time. But quickly, um, I just want to mention that here and there, I do have some conversations and uh, get follows from people on Twitter. And I just want to thank listeners that have followed me recently, lately, or been following me for a while. I know I don't say a whole lot, but I do appreciate you being there. Also, on Talking Space, I know we released a number of shows that were easy to to have fall by the wayside and be missed. And so what I wanted to do is just take a minute and talk about a few shows that uh, were somewhat unique for the guests that we had or for the topics that we discussed in the past few months. One in particular is episode 433. That was October of 2012, and it was titled The Traditional Way of Being Social. And part of our subject on that show was a trip that I made down to Kennedy Space Center for the SpaceX CRS-1 launch. And in particular, the thing that I found most interesting was the people that I spoke to that were part of the NASA social attendees that were on this uh, first launch type social where they were credentialed like traditional media, hence the traditional way of being social title. Another one that followed that by a few episodes was episode 436. This was from November of 2012, and that was where we got to tie some more pieces together. We talked to NASA's social media manager, John Yembrick, and the deputy social media manager, Jason Townsend. We learned a few interesting things about tweet-ups and where they're headed and some um, 
kind of tips that they were going to be in quite a few new places this year in 2013. That was episode 436 in November 2012. One that I had a lot of fun with, I recorded in November talking to a few people that I met from Germany for the move of Atlantis from Kennedy Space Center out to the visitor complex. And that was episode 441. And that was Treft Unsere Freunde aus Deutschland. And I gave it that title in honor of our German friends who, I got to be honest, they've got a lot more experience and have spent a lot more money having some good times at Kennedy Space Center and learning about NASA and their interest in, in that subject. So give that a listen. And last but not least, this one was quite recent. You probably caught this because I think we actually came out after the holiday, but just in case, episode 501, this was just a couple weeks ago at the beginning of the year, and this was with NASA Associate Program Scientist Tara Rutley from Johnson Space Center, and Tara talked with us again about International Space Station science, and it's always interesting to hear what she has to say. So I just wanted to take a minute to mention those shows and to give you a heads up in case you missed them with the Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and all the activity that takes place at the end of the year. Take a look back. I think you'll find these interesting. And thanks for uh, listening to me. I couldn't have picked some of my more favorite episodes. And amazing. I don't know why we've been making such good episodes recently. I mean, this is a personal biased opinion, but... Nonetheless, I think those are some of the best episodes that we've done, and I definitely suggest listening to those, and I don't know, maybe in a future show we'll do best of seasons 4, 3, 2, and 1, and give you the shows that we think you should go back and listen to. Like they say, rock on. It's a good idea, Sawyer, seriously, and, and yeah, we've been, we've been pretty blessed, and I, I'm hoping uh, our listeners are enjoying it just as much as we have. We are indeed enjoying it, and there's only a couple episodes to pick from, just so you know. Of our five seasons now, we are approaching 150 episodes. When we get to that, we hope to do something special, but in the meantime, we have come to the end of this episode, and I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Always a pleasure, Sawyer. Thanks. I had a lot of fun tonight. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. So long. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you with us as always, and we are glad to have you, the listener, with us as well. And we hope you will join us once again next time. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.